Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back. Good to see you all. It is so refreshing to see you guys. I was only away for one Sunday, and it feels like a month. I don't know what it is. That's good. It's good to be back among you. Well, this morning, um, we're continuing in our Matthew series next week. Um, So we have sort of a, a topical sermon this morning, textual sermon this morning. Uh, for the new year. Um, next week, we were hoping to have George Budd here, um, but George is actually has a minor medical procedure that he has to go through, and his doctors told him he can't travel on that weekend. So George will have to be sometime later on in the year. Uh, so for small groups, for life groups, uh, Matthew will be starting next week, so there will be handouts next week for your life groups. If you want to meet this week and just have a potluck and have some fun, that's great. Um, but after the 19th, we'll be starting again, and so the next week will be your life group first sort of come back to, to study week, and uh, you'll have the handouts for that. But this morning, I just wanted to talk about um, the church and why church matters and God's plan for his people. Um, New Year's resolutions kind of come around this time of year, and people have lots of good intentions. I saw a post on Facebook in December lamenting the fact that in January, gyms would be filled with New Year's noobs. And uh, there would be lineups at the weight bench, and there would be lineups at the stationary bikes, and for like three weeks, the attendance at the gymnasiums will go up by about 400%, and then by February, they will be empty again, and the gyms will just be living off of those six-month memberships that they sold in January and $50 cans of soybean powder uh, (laughs) that you can literally get for $3, okay, just so you know. Just paying for that brand. But the the thing about the gym, and and sort of an an analogy here, is that, that people who obviously really need to be at the gym, like yours truly, you hardly ever see at the gym. People who are at the gym look like they do not need the gym, right? But they're there all the time, very healthy and in really good shape, always working out. And that should tell us something. We usually don't realize that we're out of shape and need the gym until, you know, we hurt our back lifting the groceries or something like that because we can't lift the groceries because we're weak and should have been at the gym. And at the same time, we also have too many groceries, It's why we need the gym and why we can't lift them. You know, or you're too tired to keep up with your kids or you you can't do that old activity that you used to do quite the same. And so you resolve to get back to the gym and then this strange yo-yo effect happens. The more you use the gym, the less you realize you need it and you think, oh, I'm strong, I'm healthy, I don't need to go to the gym. And so you stop going to the gym until you get out of shape and buy more and more groceries and hurt your back again or pull... A, a hamstring or something, and then the light bulb goes on, and you realize you do need the gym, and so you go back to the gym again until you get healthy, and then you don't need the gym, and so you leave again. And we often see people who need the gym, and we can anticipate the problems they are going to have with their health, but they're not in the gym at all, and they need to be. And then we see other people at the gym from time to time, and people who are regular gym attenders will know these people. They have memberships. They do come through the door fairly regularly. They have all the right clothing. They know all the right things to say. They know how to stand properly at the equipment and how to buy the different things from the shelves. 
and they enjoy sitting in the hot tub in the dressing room, but they don't really use the gym correctly. And they're there, but they're not really getting healthy. Well, there's a spiritual reality of this phenomenon that God is fully aware of and planned for. We need a spiritual gym that's equipped to keep us in shape and to elevate us to sort of peak spiritual health and surrounds us with people who will hold us accountable and get us there. We need to be set apart from the rest of the world in general as lifelong pursuers of spiritual health. Just like we look at people, some people, and think, oh, they, they need the gym, right? And then we look at other people and say, oh, they're definitely gym people. I can tell that person goes to the gym. We need the church to be set apart in that way where people actually notice the fact that there is something different about this person. I can tell they're a church person. I can tell this person needs the church, right? God has a plan for us for our peak spiritual health that sets us apart from the rest of the world in noticeable ways. And if we look at the church today, and I mean by that the global church, the North American church, the universal church, if you want to put it that way, but I also mean Lakeside specifically, we have a few too many people who are not in the gym that should be, and maybe we have a few too many people as well who are in the gym but don't understand what it's for. And when I say gym, you know I mean the church, right? They're just not here, or they're not using the church the way God intended it. They may have grown up in church, they may have been involved in church early in their faith for years, and then they thought, hey, I'm strong, I'm good with God, you know, he and I have this relationship, and I'm solid in my faith, and I can handle life, and they kind of just dropped out of church. And then the trouble and the pain shows up in their life, and they think, wow, I need church. I'm out of shape, I don't really know where my faith is at, I've, you know, I've messed things up, and I need to get back on track, and so they come back to church, and that's good, that's great, but then they're in church for a few months, and their problems are solved, and they're feeling strong, and then they disappear again, until the next pain hits them, and they realize, I should be back in church. Or we have people who have been in the church for 5 or 10 or 15 years, but they've never really engaged in church properly. They come through the doors, they know what to say, they know how to look busy, They enjoy the facilities that serve them, but they're not really gaining any spiritual strength. And they're really, if they're honest, just barely treading water in life. And one small thing can throw their spiritual back out because they've never gotten healthy the way God intended. This is a real problem that all human beings have, this sense of self-sufficiency that ultimately exposes our weakness in the long run. God doesn't want that. He doesn't want you limping back to the gym every year or two, every time you get overwhelmed, suddenly realizing that you needed to be stronger. God's plan for you is to be strong and stay strong and to have your life and your family built around and among his people. He wants you to build your life around the church so that you don't get overwhelmed out there in life and get sideswiped by calamity. So part of the remedy for this problem is that we've been misusing church. And and the way we fix that is a better biblical understanding of God's church and its purpose for it in us. So God has an answer. The answer is the church, the assembly, the ecclesia. It's important. It's not just important. It's crucial to a normal and proper Christian life. And without the church, and without your life built around the church, you will almost certainly be overcome spiritually, emotionally, by life, by calamity, by relationship, whatever it is. So church is important, and we just want to see this in Scripture today. Let me pray before we look at what God has to say. Father God, 
We turn to your scripture to know your plan and your purpose in our lives and to confront the reality that we see in front of us. This is something that all of us can see. We see it in friends and family around us. We see it in our own lives. We see it in ourselves that we don't have it all figured out. We need something. And you did not leave us as orphans. You did not leave us without instruction. You did not leave us to live this life alone. And so, Father, we look to your word for wisdom and for counsel and for direction to guide us in ways that are good, good for our joy and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the church is important because God's plan for the people and God's plan for the world has always been rooted in community and in togetherness. The assembly of his people set apart from the rest of the world as a nation among nations or as a family among families has always been God's plan A for mankind and there is no plan B. That's why the church is important. If you were to look back at the very beginning in Genesis, we see that God did not simply make Adam and consider his work finished. It says in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man is alone. And so God made Adam and Eve, and he told them to be helpers and supporters and to multiply. And then later, when God called Abram out of Ur, it was to establish a nation with children, it says in Genesis 22:17, as numerous as the sands on the beach. And as the nation of Israel rose up, God established them apart from all other nations. They were set apart. They were called out. They were defined by their identity as followers of God Almighty. These people are different than other people. They are set apart from the rest of the world. Everybody knew where the edges of the nation of Israel were, so to speak. God said, you're a people together, I've planted you as a nation and I've called you out of the rest of the world and, and there are edges to the nation of Israel that are defined, people know that you're different. The whole structure of the old covenant is one of belonging, of, of being a part, of being a member, of being a citizen. And with that belonging in the new covenant or in the old covenant, with that belonging came the expectation of participation. When you look at, through the Old Testament, just the activity of the people of God, the nation of Israel, you see that they exhorted one another with God's word. They protected one another. They encouraged one another. They held each other accountable. They preached the word to each other. They taught their families together, it says in Deuteronomy 6. They worshiped together, says in Exodus 29. They sacrificed together, uh, Leviticus 1 through 7. They feasted together, Leviticus 23 lists all those. In other words, there was an active role to belonging. These people that God set apart put them together for a purpose, gathered them around activities that were intentional for them to be distinct and for their health. That's the Old Testament. And then as we roll forward into the New Testament, the new covenant, the new pattern of life, which came with the coming of Jesus Christ, as God's people, we see that this idea of a people set apart doesn't go away. When you look at the teaching of Jesus, what you discover is that he expected his disciples and his followers to continue to be gathered together as a people apart from the rest of the world. This is entirely what his plan was. He, he expects them to be an ecclesia. In the Greek, that word for the church means literally called together or called out. It was an assembly of citizens that were gathered to discuss the affairs of their community. And Jesus uses that word. He says, you're going to be ecclesia. You're going to be called out, gathered together to deal with the affairs of God's people. We see that Jesus envisioned this 
and that is people would come together and continue to be in the church as an example in Matthew 18. And you don't have to turn there right now. But in Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to deal with difficulties and issues that arise among believers. So you've got believers. Someone has sinned against somebody. There's been some relational difficulty. Some, something has taken place. And he says, you, what you do when that happens is if they can't sort it out themselves, then they take it to the church. And he uses that word, ecclesia. He says, you take it to the ecclesia. Well, well who's that going to be? I mean, it's just Jesus and a handful of disciples at this point. So what's Jesus talking about in Matthew 18? He can't mean the universal church. He can't mean take it to all the Christians in the world and have them help you. No. Jesus is expecting here, just in this instruction that he gives, that his people will gather together into local bodies who can identify with each other and say, yeah, that's part of my church. That's part of my ecclesia. And we're going to gather together and we're going to deal with this issue. He assumes his followers will be in a local church with believers that they can identify and go to for help and that it would be a type of church you could trust with these kinds of difficult situations. Right? Otherwise, Matthew 18 doesn't make any sense unless you are able to gather together and actually get wisdom and counsel and help from each other. So Jesus' vision is, as you go forward, after I'm gone, you are going to be gathered together in these communities of people, and you're going to be able to go to each other with hard issues, and it's going to be the type of community that will care for you through those things. And then Jesus also seems to intend that the local visible church, the local body of believers who gather together, that they would remain in the world as a lasting testimony of himself. Jesus' intention is that through the church, he would still be present on earth. And we see this when Jesus talks to his disciples in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you do have love for one another. And so this is another thing we can just sort of pick up from the teaching of Jesus. Apparently, in Jesus' mind... Disciples of Jesus are going to be loving one another. Together, they're going to be holding each other accountable. They're going to turn to each other for wisdom. They're going to be showing compassion towards each other. They're going to be caring for each other. And by doing that, they're going to be a testimony to the world of who he is and of his love. It just None of the things Jesus tells us to do make sense unless church is important to what he has planned for his disciples. Right? And, then there, and there's this tremendous pressure in our culture that stands against this. Right? There's a tremendous pressure in our culture that says you need to keep your faith a personal thing. The faith is a personal matter. It's not to be shared with everybody else, right? I mean, you just came through Christmas dinners and New Year's parties, right? What do you never talk about at the dinner table? You don't talk about politics or religion because you might have faith, but that's your thing. That's a personal thing. And so culture right now has this pressure that we are supposed to keep our faith to ourselves, And then there's a greater pressure in our own flesh, especially when we know that perhaps we're not as loving or as obedient or as righteous or as pure as we should be right now in our life. We have this additional pressure in our flesh to keep our faith even more personal, so personal, in fact, that we don't even show up at church, right? I'm going to keep my faith so personal. Let's call it private. Let's call it like I'm just going to stay home. That's how personal we keep it, when we know we're maybe not where we should be with God. But the thing about those two pressures, the cultural pressure to keep faith personal and to not share it, and the, and the fleshly pressure to try to keep it all you know, private because you know, you're not as looking as good as you're supposed to at the gym, the problem with that is that faith was never meant to be just about you and Jesus. 
Faith as God intended it for you is always meant to be worked out in community with other believers as, as citizens who are called out of the world in a way that the edges are clearly defined and in community that can teach and minister and support you. And as we go through the rest of the New Testament and the whole text assumes that Christians are in churches. But I want to just point out one thing that really sets church apart from everything else. In Acts chapter 9, we, we get this sort of powerful insight into the nature of the early church and Jesus' identity with the church and how important the church is and how Jesus identifies with his people as gathered local assemblies. In Acts chapter 9, Saul, who is going to later be renamed Paul and write most of the New Testament, Saul was heading to Damascus in order to persecute Christians. Acts 8.3 says he was going from house to house, dragging Christians out of their houses and sending them to prison. Well, along the road, as he's going to Damascus to do this even more so, he literally gets knocked off his feet by the appearance of Jesus in Acts 9.3. And then Jesus says this to Saul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No. What does he say? Why are you persecuting me? So, he's not saying, Saul... Don't persecute the church. Don't, don't persecute these nice Christian people. You know, don't be a bad guy. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies with the church so much that he just calls it me. Paul's, Paul's going to be renamed. Saul's going to be renamed, sorry, to Paul. He's going to write a lot of the New Testament. Paul's going to very often call the church the body of Christ. You know, he's got... Paul's got lots of words and metaphors for what the church is, right? He calls it a kingdom of priests, he calls it a the body of Christ, he calls it all kinds of things. Jesus just calls the church me. That's Jesus' name for the church, me. So, so you look at that and you have to ask, now, do you think Jesus wants you to be cut off from the tangible local, manifest presence of himself. No. We're not meant to be apart from the body of Christ. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just an analogy that the Bible uses. The church is the body of Christ filled with the Spirit of Christ on earth. And Jesus says, you cannot be cut off from that. That's what Scripture tells us the church is. That's what Jesus tells us the church is. So we've laid a good foundation, I think, that church is biblical and crucial. What I want to do in the last few minutes is just get a little more specific about the church. Why God wants us in church. And this is where we begin to see some amazing continuity between the Old and the New Covenant. Even though the the law has been replaced by Jesus, it doesn't mean the activity of God among His people has changed. God wants us to be a part of His church for the same reasons as He wanted Israel to be part of the nation under the law. He wants us to have a proper place for our sacrifice and for our worship, he says in Hebrews 13, 15. It says, through him, that is Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Right. So God says, I want you in the church because there needs to be a proper place for your sacrifice and for your worship. He wants us to sit under the reading and the teaching of Scripture, says in Acts 13, 1 and 1 Timothy 4. 
He wants us singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together in Ephesians 5 and in Colossians 3. He's put us together in the church so that we will be praying for one another in 1 Timothy 2. He wants us to be set apart as distinct from the world through baptism and communion in Matthew 28:19 and 1 Corinthians 11. You realize that the ordinances of the church that we participate in when we are baptized, we sort of one time in our life set ourselves apart from the rest of the world. We draw a border, a boundary that says we are a different kind of person. And then every time when we take communion, we continue as a people to set ourselves apart. So through baptism and communion, we are saying these are the edges of our community. These, The people that are baptized and the people who take communion are people who identify with Christ. And we have boundaries now to our community and edges that set us apart from the world. And and God wants us stirring one another up in love and good deeds for each other, Hebrews 10, and to be a living sacrifice, Romans 12. So the church is meant to be our spiritual gym. It's where we exercise our faith. It's where we are able to look in the mirror of God's Word and see how we're doing. You notice that about gyms? Everywhere you go in a gym, there's a mirror. I don't get it. Nobody wants to see this. Least of all me. But everywhere you go in a gym, there's mirrors so that you can see how you're doing. Am I exercising correctly? Is it having the effect that it should? And God gives us His Word as a mirror that we look into to compare and see how we are doing. It's where God intends that we place our identity, what we build our life around. It's where we're meant to be encouraged and corrected and reconciled. That's why God wants you in church. Why is all this benefit to you to be part of a church? One thing I just want to stop and acknowledge is that all of this good news about church, and it's all good news, all this good news about church and God's purpose for it and its scriptural intent and its purpose in our lives and the reason God has placed us in churches, it doesn't mean things will not ever go wrong in our life. The strong do get sick. The prepared still suffer. It's because sin can overtake us in the world. It's, it's for the very reason that, that sin can come upon us and that it can sideswipe us in our own lives and we can be affected by it as it's affecting others. And, and it's the very fact that in our flesh we're still wrestling with sin that God has put you in a church. Being in a church doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to you. Being in a church doesn't mean that calamity will never come. Being in a church means that can mean that you may not go as wrong as you might have. Being in a church means that it can preserve and prevent spiritual calamity. James 5, 19 to 20 puts it this way. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you... So he's already talking about a group of believers who are gathered together and who know each other. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. So you see, James says here that in the church, we have brothers and sisters who can warn us when we are going off track. And in that warning, when we wander, save us from serious consequences, save us from future harm. We basically have... 100, 200 spotters for us in the gym. They are there when we're doing the heavy lifting of life 
And we start to get off track. We start to wander from where we should be in our spiritual fitness. James says, if any of you wander and a brother or sister brings them back, they, they save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. There are serious consequences if we don't have spotters in our spiritual life to save us from serious, serious consequences. And... It means when and if things do go sideways on us, maybe not due to our flesh or our sin, maybe we're affected by the sin of others, maybe the, you know, the, the curse of the world and all of that that is still out there. When it, but when things do go sideways on us, you have the Christian support you will need to bear that burden, and you can look at Galatians 6 for that. Paul says in Galatians that we're to bear one another's burdens and not grow weary of doing good to one another. And he says, quote, especially those who are of the household of faith in Galatians 6.10. He says, especially brothers and sisters who are in that household, who are in your local church, you definitely take care of them. Yes, do good to everybody else and don't grow weary of doing good, but you definitely do good and you definitely bear the burdens of your brothers and sisters in church. So when people on the outside are looking in, just like Jesus said, and they see our love for each other and our bearing burden for each other, and they say, man, I wish I had some of that. And you say, you can have that. Just come on in. Right? We love each other. We care for each other. We bear each other's burdens. We love the, we love the world. We want to help the world too, but we definitely love each other and bear each other's burdens. Paul says, especially those who are of the household of faith. It's the church where that burden bearing is supposed to happen. The church doesn't inoculate you against any harm or against all sin, but what the church does mean is that you have an environment to be able to grow in wisdom and compassion. That's sanctification. You have a God-pleasing outlet and purpose for your own gifts and energy. That's sacrifice. You have the right object of your affection and treasure and time who is God. That's our worship. You have a proper place of identity and worth set apart as a child and person of God. It means you have intercessors in prayer, James 5.16. It means you have a place to confess sin, James 5.16. You have a place to be accepted, Romans 15.7. You have a place to be forgiven, Colossians 3.13. It means you will be held accountable, 1 Corinthians 5 and Ephesians 5.21. It means you have burden bearers, Galatians 6. It means you have a place to hear truth instead of lies, Ephesians 4.15. It means you have a place to be encouraged and built up, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. So if you don't have church, then where are you going to get all those things? All those things are in the church. And I could have kept going. (laughs) You know, all the one another's of Scripture. There's a hundred of them used in about 93 different verses. A hundred one another's that we're meant to do for each other. And so if you don't have church, where will you get those things? And I'm sure many of you here know of people who used to be part of the church and who now aren't. Or maybe you remember seasons in your own life where you set yourself apart from the church for a while and you can see those people have very little of any of these blessings that we've been talking about. They are coasting for a little while on past health and frankly just on the providence of God that they have not been shipwrecked yet. But you know it's going to catch up to them. They don't have their hearts and hopes set on God. They have little opportunity to serve sacrificially and humbly. They are finding their identity in false idols and putting their hope in broken cisterns that are leaving them a little more thirsty every day because they're not drinking 
here at the fountain of life. They have few, if any, true friends who will tell them the truth and guard them from sin. In fact, they are probably gathering around them friends who are encouraging them into sin. They may have Jesus to some degree, but they are outside of his assembly. They are outside of his body. Remember, Jesus just calls the church me. They're outside the camp, and nothing good happens outside the camp. So then what is your church? Beyond the structures we have in the New Testament, a body of people under the direction of elders that they select and set apart by baptism and communion, the the local, visible, present assembly where you live out your Christian life. It's not mainly a building. It's not mainly the staff. And in some regards, it's not mainly the elders or even mainly the ministry leaders. The church is, is also not just a few people that you wave or talk to about the weather or about football on Sundays. Your church may start with that larger group, that larger assembly. Here at Lakeside, we could talk about the 150 to 200 people that call Lakeside home. But where the church really gets into your life, where all of this stuff that I've been talking about really starts to happen and the rubber meets the road, is in the context of the 10 or 20 people that you invite into your life to do these things with. Let's look at it this way. Let's go back to Scripture. That's always a good idea. You say, Paul, is that biblical? Let's see. In the book of Acts, very first church, okay? Very first church of all time in our modern context, in the New Testament context. In the book of Acts, the church of Jerusalem got started with 3,000 people in one day after Peter preached. And from those 3,000 people, it grew from there. Okay, so Jerusalem was the first megachurch. People have problems with megachurches? The first one was a megachurch, okay? And from those 3,000 people, or 6,000, or 10,000, or whatever it grew to in Jerusalem, those 3,000, or 6,000, or 10,000 people in Jerusalem couldn't all look to Peter and say, well, he's the head guy, he's the church, I'm expecting a lot of his presence in my life. They couldn't even look to the disciples and say, well, those loving other guys, they're the church. I got to go to them or through them for it to be official church business. You realize that's impossible with 3,000 people. No, that's not the church. No, the church for most people, most Christians in the first century, were the 10 or 20 people that they met with through the week in each other's homes. In Acts 16, 14, you have the church that met in Lydia's house. In, in 18, 1 to 3, you have Aquila's church in his home. In Romans 6, 23, you have the house of Gaius and the church that meets there. In 1 Corinthians 16, we hear about Aquila's church again. In Colossians 4, 15, uh, we hear about the church in Nympha's house. You see, the church is the people you gather around and gather with weekly. And you have to build that group, that group of 10 to 20 people who are going to be in your life as part of the larger assembly of the church, who have the context and the credibility with you to be able to share life in the way that the Bible intends Christians to share it. Because you can come, remember those people that are at the gym but not really getting healthy, you you can come to the local church every week and you can sit in whatever row you want to sit in and then you can, you know, have a coffee, talk to a few people for 10 minutes and go home and none of this blessing that the Bible talks about will happen for you. You'll sit under the teaching of the Word, you'll worship for a while and that's good, but that's like just, that's just the icing on the cake that God wants for you in the church. 
The real church are those 10 to 20 people that you invite into your life and that you do these biblical things with, within the context of the local assembly. They are the people that you will train with, that you will serve with, that you will sacrifice with, that you will exhort and encourage and guard and protect each other's spiritual lives because you know each other. Better than Peter could know the 3,000 people that entered the church that day. Better than the apostles could know the 10,000 people in Jerusalem that were Christians. Better than I can know you. You need that group of people. So you say, well, how do I do that then? How do we as the church make it places where people who are having trouble sticking and, and getting into the spiritual gym, how do we make a place so it's easy for them to connect? How do we get them to the gym and keep them at the gym and keep ourselves at the gym? Well, we do just what the Bible teaches us. Hospitality, 1 Peter 4.9 says, show hospitality to each other and use your gifts to serve one another. Hospitality is the thin edge of the wedge. Just make a phone call, send a text, have a coffee, invite somebody over for lunch or invite somebody over for dinner. Be hospitable. We need to be a church that is so hospitable that people just get folded into our family without even realizing it. That they, they come through the doors and all of a sudden there are people in their lives that just welcome them in and make it easy for them to stay. And part of that is that it's safe. We have to provide a place of safety. People need to feel safe to be real with who they are and where they are at. That means not being judgmental and not discouraging, but it also means not being a place where sin can hide and thrive because that isn't safe either. We cannot allow and we have to understand that safe doesn't simply mean you know, just unqualified acceptance of everything. Neither this church nor your life groups can be places where sin can hide out indefinitely. So yes, we won't be the ones to judge. We will let the Scripture and the Holy Spirit be the ones that judge. But we will also keep our church and our group safe by guarding against indwelling sin. And really, that is what people are looking for. You think people aren't looking for that, that they're not looking for accountability, that they, they don't, you know, they don't want people in their life. Listen, if they are coming to this church, if they are coming to your life group, they are crying out for that. There are lots of places in the world where they can be left alone. If they're coming to church and they're coming to your life group, they don't want to be left alone. They want to be held accountable. In love, with compassion, yes, but they're looking for what the church has for them, what Jesus has. We need to be actively redemptive and gospel-focused. The good news is that God is a redeemer and a reconciler. And we have this ministry of reconciliation, First, Second Corinthians 5 tells us. So this means that whenever sin or immaturity or foolishness or hurt or whatever does come out in the church, we are meeting that all the time with the gospel. We are keeping in front of us at all times that God is a redeemer, God is a reconciler, God is a healer, and he's given us the same ministry. The gospel is something that we apply like an ointment for healing or a prevention against future harm. And proactively in our own lives, just like all those fit people that are at the gym, right? There's a reason they're fit. It's because they're at the gym, right? So proactively for ourselves, we are always in the mode of redeeming each area of our life, bringing every area of our life under the focus of Scripture and redeeming it. We're redeeming our marriage. We're redeeming our parenting, redeeming our work, redeeming our leisure, even especially when it doesn't look like we need it. Because if we stop redeeming ourselves and being a redemptive community, then we will get flabby, we will get out of shape, and sin will overtake us we also are going to be relentlessly hopeful because God is a redeemer 
And because God will not leave us or forsake us, we have hope and our trust in him. And so we are relentlessly hopeful in the power of God. Not hopeful in a specific outcome that we think is what we want, but hopeful that regardless of the outcome, God is with us and in sovereign control. And then finally, we're going to be intentionally intrusive. This is a great phrase. Paul Washer has a a great line about encouraging every Christian to get themselves involved in a group of intentionally intrusive people. This is what church is. When, When you're part of a church, when you're part of Lakeside, you may not know this yet, but it's true. So if you're sitting here today, when, if you're part of Lakeside, if you're part of a life group, you are giving permission to a group of believers in the church, and we get permission from them in return to basically mind their business, right? And they will mind ours. Because our faith is not personal or private, Because we are part of the body of Christ and what happens to one of us affects all of us. So you don't get to join yourself to the church for all the benefits and not not be accountable to the church for how you live out your life. Because when you hurt, we all really do hurt. And I know that people don't believe that, especially people on the margins of the gym, on the margins of church. They really think that if something's going sideways in their life, it's all private and personal and nobody else is getting hurt. Trust me, if you are part of a body of Christ in any meaningful way, if your life is hurting, our life is hurting. We all hurt. God does not intend us to go through these things alone. He's bonded us with His Son through the Holy Spirit because we really are the body of Christ. When you're hurt, we all hurt. That's not just a nice sentiment. It really is. When you struggle, we struggle with you. When you're burdened, we bear it in some way. And so we need to let each other be intentionally intrusive into our lives for healing and redemption to take place. So all of that is why the church is important. All all, all of that stuff we've just been talking about straight out of Scripture is why it's crucial. It's not optional. The church is God's plan. It's where we are set apart. It's where we worship. It's where we sacrifice, learn, teach, encourage, grow, strengthen, bear burdens, have our burdens borne. Outside of the church, you will get flabby. You will get weak. You will falter because God never intended your faith to be lived out alone. So build your life around the church. And this is why at Lakeside we place such a high value on membership. A Christian on their own is not normal. This is why we put such a high value on life groups and Bible studies and things like WOW and Family Night. You can't thrive and maybe not even survive as a Christian on just one hour of surface contact a week or or worse, one hour a month. You need a spirit-filled body of believers alongside you and your family to make it work. Jesus told Peter when he said that he was going to establish his church, he said, "The the gates of hell will not withstand this. That's the church. Okay, Rotary doesn't have that. The Lions Club is not that. You know, there's some great social clubs out there. None of them have this. None of them have the God of the universe saying, the gates of hell are not going to stand against this, what I've given you in the church. The church is people, but it's far more. It's people filled with the Spirit of God and His Almighty Son. Jesus Christ. It's transforming and preserving power over sin and darkness. And so I don't know what New Year's resolutions you've made this year. Maybe made and already broken. (laughs) But I would encourage you 
make a new year commitment to life groups, to Bible study, to ministry, even just to attending every Sunday. Make a commitment to deepening personal relationships with your favorite Christians. I'm not even telling you that you need to get to know people you don't like. Pick your favorite Christians. You like them for a reason. And get to know them deep in those relationships. Over coffee, over dinner, in life groups, in your home. Build your life around that 10 to 20 people. Because this is God's intention for His church. That you would never be left alone or abandoned or be overtaken or shipwrecked in life. He's given the church for a purpose. Everything else other than the church is dangerous to your faith, to your family, and to your life. Build your life here. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. We thank you for your scripture from cover to cover. We thank you for your single-minded purpose to care for us and that your plan included your church. And there is no other plan because there doesn't need to be any plan because plan A is going to work. Plan A has worked for 2,000 years. The world has thrown everything it possibly could against the church and it just grows and grows and grows. And so, Father, we thank you that you've not left us as orphans. We thank you that you've not left us to live this life alone. Father, we know that the devil is like a lion who is prowling, waiting to devour. And so, Father, you have placed us among strong brothers and sisters to build us, to encourage us, to pray for us, for us to learn from, to hear your word from, to be taught. Father, we won't get that anywhere else but here. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us that we would have a renewed joy and a renewed commitment and a renewed appreciation of just how much hope comes from your church. And we would plug into it and never unplug. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.